Knowledge Products presents the German Historical School of Economics, narrated by Louis Rukeyser. Today, the German Historical School of Economics is not considered part of mainstream economics anywhere. In fact, few economic theorists today would touch this kind of economics with a 10-foot pole. But 100 years ago, this school was a part of one of the most vigorous, spirited, and vituperative debates in the history of economics. What's more, the ideas of the German Historical School can offer us keen insights into the nature of economics. The German Historical School is perhaps best remembered for its role in the Methodenstreit, or the controversy over the appropriate method in economics. This controversy goes to the heart of what economics really is. Is it a body of theory whose principles we can follow, as the classical economists suggested, or is it a historical discipline that looks only at specific political and social circumstances? A group of German university professors argued forcefully against the generalized theories of the classical economists. The German scholars felt that the classical economists were too speculative. They insisted that economic variables can be analyzed and understood only in conjunction with social factors, such as institutional change, psychology, the spirit of the times, technological change, and other circumstances that shape the way we live. They believed economists should be jacks of many trades, deliberately de-emphasizing abstract economic theory in favor of a more general, holistic approach to economic analysis. They also stressed the importance of economic policy-making. Economics was not a classroom science for them. The German Historical School began in the early 1840s, when a group of economists, including Wilhelm Roscher, Bruno Hildebrand, and Karl Knies, began to search for a middle ground between laissez-faire classical economics and Karl Marx's strident calls for revolution. These professors were followed by a later generation known as the Younger School, led by Gustav Schmaller and including important contributions by Luyo Brentano and Werner Sombart. By the 1880s, their work culminated in massive welfare legislation in Germany, beginning what has become the modern welfare state. The German economists insisted on the inductive method of analysis, collecting institutional data and social statistics, and drawing conclusions from that empirical information. This differed from the deductive method of the classical economists, which begins with principles and assumptions, applies logic to them, and then tries to use or apply the resulting conclusions. The Germans insisted that the national economy is the proper unit of analysis in economics, not the individual, the household, or the firm. They also insisted that economists should suggest what ought to be and what ought not to be. In trying to establish social norms, this stance is called normative economics, and it departs radically from the impartial positive economics preferred by others. Eventually, the German economists and their enemies in England's classical school, in the Austrian school, and in the emerging English neoclassical school, would find a middle ground of agreement. Both the inductive and the deductive methods were eventually to be accepted as indispensable parts of economic analysis.
But this would not occur before a great conflict had created enough anger and strife to last for many decades. The members of the German Historical School of Economics were products of their country's history. For centuries, Germany, like Italy, had been but a geographic concept. In reality, Germany had consisted of some 300 German-speaking kingdoms, duchies, free cities, and small principalities. Much of the turmoil in Europe in the 19th century was centered in Prussia. From a small, inconsequential dukedom, it had gradually evolved into a European power located in the northeastern corner of Germany. Since the end of the 17th century, Prussia had been ruled by rather enlightened kings. At a time when absolute rulers were thinking of power, with strong navies and armies using ordinary people as cannon fodder, the Prussian kings showed a certain amount of tolerance and vision. After the French butchered their Huguenots on St. Bartholomew's Day in 1572, and after a century of oppression in France, Prussia invited these French Protestants to settle in its territory. Thousands availed themselves of this opportunity and transplanted their entrepreneurial talent to Prussia. They brought with them investment funds as well. Prussia bestowed upon these newcomers all the civil liberties enjoyed by its own native-born subjects. In 1756, the Seven Year War had broken out, the first imperial war in the modern style. Prussia, ruled by Frederick the Great, managed to antagonize its neighbors and eventually found itself encircled by an alliance of France, Austria, Russia, and Sweden. Prussia survived in the end, barely, because of two fortunate turns of events. Its ally, Great Britain, won its naval confrontation with France, and Prussia's major enemy, Russia, withdrew from the Seven Year War when an ardent admirer of Frederick the Great acceded to the Russian throne. Maria Theresa of Austria, weary of the prolonged bloodshed, quit too. Forty years later, in 1796, Napoleon's armies rode roughshod over the entire European continent. Napoleon made and unmade kings demanded reparations from the defeated kingdoms and dukedoms and cities, and made new laws. He brought the new spirit of liberty, fraternity, and equality throughout occupied Europe. Eventually, his armies were defeated in Russia in 1812 and at Waterloo in mid-1815. So Prussia had survived again, even though the former 300 little Germanys had been reduced to 38 German states. For more than 30 years, from 1815 to 1848, Europe was dominated by what was called the Holy Alliance, which included Russia, Prussia, and Austria. This alliance had been created by Metternich, Austria's well-known foreign minister, during the Vienna Conference of 1815. By 1848, however, Europe was virtually torn asunder by rising demands for written constitutions, civil rights, and constitutional forms of government. In the words of the English historian Sir Louis Namir, the French Revolution of 1848 actually interrupted progress toward parliamentary government and political liberty. The year 1848 in France carried the two basic political ideas of the Great Revolution to their logical conclusion. Equality was achieved in universal suffrage 
and the sovereignty of the people in the Republic. The development which it interrupted and the noble work which it destroyed were what in other continental countries the revolution on its political sides aspired to attain, parliamentary government and political liberty under constitutional monarchy. The divine right of kings, accepted during former days, was considered passé by the emerging middle classes of merchants, industrialists, and exporters. As stated by Sir Louis Namir, German citizens began to form groups with vested political interests. The first moves in the revolution naturally took existing states for their starting point. Constitutional freedoms were demanded. Liberal governments were set up. Representative assemblies were conceded. And thus, new vested political interests were developed in states which had hitherto been merely dynastic creations and inheritances. The doctrine of the divine right of kings was also rejected by the swelling numbers of propertyless industrial workers, known as proletarians. The Communist Manifesto, published in 1848, swayed millions of the propertyless classes to embrace socialism. It proclaimed, The immediate aim of the Communists is the same as that of all other proletarian parties. Formation of the proletariat into a class, overthrow of the bourgeois supremacy, conquest of political power by the proletariat. The distinguishing feature of communism is not the abolition of property generally, but the abolition of bourgeois property. But modern bourgeois private property is the final and most complete experience.